Kings Insider Podcast on CSNCalifornia.com. Introducing your host, Sacramento Kings Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham, sitting in the upper bowl of Golden One Center with Mr. Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Uh, excellent. So you're in town doing a feature on the Kings, of, of course, but you've been with the team for a couple of days. How is that going? You know, it's going really well. Uh, it, it's an interesting time for the team. And I, I think the sense I'm getting is they're really trying to install a structure. You know, when you have four coaches come in and out in a very short period of time, I, I think sometimes that continuity can be lost in an organization. And, and so, you know, it, it feels for the first time in a while being around an organization that is sort of a little bit settled. Um, they, they have a young coach. That young coach is going to be around. They have a beautiful new building. Uh, they have a gorgeous training facility. And it seems, at least from the outside, like it could be, and I, there are all these conditions, right? It could of be course. the dawn of a new day uh, in, in Sacramento. Now, of course, they have to do uh, the real work, which is actually going out, winning ball games, uh, acquiring assets, and uh, becoming a team that you can see three years down the road say, oh, wow, you know, that is a team that is on an upward trajectory. So you were around, you know, a couple of years ago when it was in the old building, and it was chaos. And, and so you're seeing a little bit of organization. Does it feel good? Does the, the vibe around here feel better to you? Because I know that's one thing, like, I, I, the reason I love having you on is you have an outside perspective. When you're in it every day and you see it every day, you have your feelings about what's happening. But it's nice to get someone an outside perspective. I think organizationally, in the macro, it does feel a little bit like a new day. Uh, I mean, it, again, your infrastructure has become so important in the NBA, and it's something the regular fan uh, or, or the listener or, or the viewer might not always appreciate is these aren't just teams, they're companies, right? They have financial viability. They have a business side that is generally much larger than uh, the, the basketball operations side. Uh, this particular organization is really involved in real estate and very much tied to the development of downtown in Sacramento. And so in that respect, it does feel like a more mature enterprise. Now, around the team itself, they're not winning basketball games. And so I I would be lying if I said to you, oh, yeah, the vibe (laughs) is great in in, in the locker room. They're not winning basketball games. And, you know, at a certain point, that's going to invite uh, some close self-examination. And this very well could be a different team in a few months than it is now. And I think right now, it seems like everyone is in information-gathering mode. What are the realistic expectations revised each day going forward? And to the extent we decide they're different than they were at the beginning of the season uh, and we're now building to the future, what do we need to execute from a transactional standpoint to get there? Now, again, you've been around the team. You've talked to everybody in the building. You've kind of been like, uh, I don't know, part of the fabric of what's happening here over the last, I don't know, three or four days. You've got to see... Sort of the the fan in interaction with Friday night's game, but then you get to see them go on the road and completely collapse in sort of the dark side of the Sacramento Kings. 
it feels like that's always kind of around the corner with this team and this franchise, that dark side. Did you, did you feel that when you were on the road? I'll say this. They're losing basketball games, but I don't think Friday and Saturday night um, – there was frustration, but I get the sense that the process was okay. Uh, they they ran out of gas on Saturday night, the second night of a back-to-back, losing an hour in altitude. I'm not making excuses, but they showed a lot of fight. And, you know, at the end of the day, they did fall victim to certain things, which is, um, you know, at, at times sets get broken off. Uh, at times there's a lot of one-on-one basketball from the top of the floor. Um, they, you know, d- defensively missed a couple of assignments and – such as life when you're playing a really good team on the road on the second night of a back-to-back. But they played a really competitive basketball game. I don't think the effort ever waned. Uh, both Friday night and Saturday night, you could sense that in the locker room a little bit, which is, well, this is frustrating. We're still losing basketball games. But I get the sense that the process itself um, you know, isn't lacking. I mean, the bottom line is, and this is sort of the elephant in the room, is there's not a lot of shooting on the floor. And I just think in this day and age in the NBA, you have to have shooting on the floor. Now, you say that. And the Kings have probably, I don't know, top three big man. I, I, he's I watch unbelievable. Him. He's unbelievable. I watch unbelievable. him night in, night out. And I have for seven years since he came in the league. But can you win with a big man like this in today's NBA? Absolutely. Uh, and he is such an otherworldly talent. Um, you know, obviously there are larger questions. I think at age, what, he's 25 now? 26. At 26. I mean, there's still a lot to cultivate in terms of maturity. Um, I, I think, you know, is he going to be a, a great team leader? Is he now? Probably not. Uh, in the future, who knows? I don't think that's the problem. I mean, that, that is an incredible – because he's so versatile. I mean, if you told me hey, he's a traditional, conventional, back-to-the-back uh, Dwight Howard-type center who is limited from range, who defenses can play off and, and sort of you know, overplay the weak side, that'd be one thing. But in the case of – DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, there is everything. He can play at the top of the floor. Uh, you're not a great pick-and-roll player, I think, right now. Um, love to see him kind of roll harder. But there's just so much there. With the rest of the team, though, how long will it take to, to build something around him? Because, I mean, you don't want him to waste his entire career in Sacramento. But at the other the other flip of the coin, you, you've had conversations with him, I'm sure. And he will openly tell you he loves it in Sacramento. He could see himself staying here forever. I mean... How do you judge that? At one point, is it time to really say goodbye and let him move on and go find success? Or do you think he can find it here in Sacramento? I think the first thing to do is actually not DeMarcus. I think is, to the extent there are assets that are desired on this current roster, I'd like to see the organization gauge that market, and I'm sure they will. Uh, you know, I don't know that it'll happen today or tomorrow. I still think there's an evaluation period going on right now. But I think as the season goes on, the question is, Is can you start acquiring players and assets that you can build around DeMarcus? Uh, the, what is the market for him on the outside? That is the million-dollar question in the league. Uh, you know, I talked to one team that, has, it, that would be a good fit for a trading partner, has the sort of assets a team like Sacramento would be looking for if they ever dealt that, uh, a man that talented. And, you know, they're a little skeptical. There and that might be subterfuge, and, and but I, I think there is a sense that um, there is a certain gamble that goes with absorbing Demar- Demarcus. Um, you know, he's never been in a great culture, and um, so there are two schools of thought: could you absorb Demarcus into a, a great culture and he he, he would flourish, uh, or is he part of the problem? And, and that is, you know, from the outside, that's a very tough thing to gauge. 
Um, but the talent is is unmistakable. But I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't I would not move to Marcus Cousins. I would move just about everything else though. <laughs> okay, so you talk about culture. And the Kings brought in Vlade Divac to try to build culture. And you spent time with him this week, I'm, I assume. Uh, he's about as engaging and, I don't know, charismatic you're going to find. But can he do the job with the right pieces around him as a general manager? From the outside, a lot of people keep heaping on Sacramento. Why would you bring in a guy who doesn't have the experience? Why would, you know, just be a, a guy that every all the fans are going to love? But why would you do this? Do you think he can, he can do the job long term? Uh, I, I think... The good thing about Vladi is he knows what he does not know, and he'll be the first to tell you that. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Ken Catnell. I think I gave a, a tweet what a smart hire that was um, when the when the Kings made it over the summer. And I, I think it's like everything else in the league. It, it, it's about delegation. It's about structure. It's about are you acquiring the right information? Will the will the business side say invest in management infrastructure in top? Analytics in health, uh, player science, and player sorry, player health, uh, sports science. Will there be a world class scouting department? Will there be the sort of tools and support that you need to make really good decisions? I don't think any of that's impossible under Vladi Dibats. Um, is he a preternatural managerial genius? No, certainly not right now. Um, I do think teams that are willing to commit to a certain process, to having a certain quality of infrastructure, are able to flourish. And, and frankly, sometimes that position more and more, given how big these NBA staffs are becoming on the management side, are often ambassadorial. They often are. That, that, that might necessarily be the guy who's making the, the, the granular cap decision. That might not be the guy who's making the most extensive scouting report. That is often the person who can, say, sell an owner on, we need to invest in this player. And, and I've seen so many GMs in the league who are geniuses, but they can't sell it to their owner. So they've got all these great plans, and they have the best analytics, and they have the best idea for a a draft strategy, and at the end of the day, they can't convince a stubborn owner to sign on to that, or or we're not taking that contract on. And so, like, what good is that? So I'm starting to believe, and I, I mean this sincerely, that sometimes I would rather have a GM who can... Yeah, charisma is out of the is not necessarily the, the issue. It is who can make the sell internally, who can go to a coach and say, "Hey, man, I know you wanted A. I'm going to give you A minus something, and and here are my recommendations. Stick with me on this. Trust me on this. I'd rather have a GM who can go to an owner and say, "I know this is going to sound counterintuitive. Here's what everyone's telling you. Let me lay out the argument. Oh, by the way, here's Ken Ken Catanella. He's going to he is going to explain sort of the more granular details of this plan." Lonnie may end up being that, and I, and I think that's definitely within the realm of possibility. He needs trust from ownership. He needs trust from everybody in the organization, and he's going to need a buy-in from the coaching staff and the players and everything else. And if he can get that, sure. Okay, and you bring up ownership. You've been here again. Uh, you've, I'm, Vivek is, a, is an owner that has an opinion. He's a guy that wants to be part of some of the decision-making are you comfortable with that as can you be successful in the league being sort of in the room as an owner and not just letting the basketball side do their job? It's very difficult. I think what you would find is that if we, we, we drew a graph between and one axis was owner participation and involvement and the other was 
long-term success of the franchise, there would be somewhat of a line. Now, there are exceptions to that, right? There, there's some very active owners who've been successful. Frankly, there have been some absentee owners who've been unsuccessful. But, you know, it's always interesting when I'm, I'm talking generally about organizational culture, and I'll min- bring up the name Peter Holt, too. You know, even a basketball fan, a friend who, you know, not a junkie, but who's like, who's that? So that's the owner of the San Antonio Spurs, probably the most single, most successful sports franchise in North America in the last 20 years. 40 um, years. Yeah, never heard of him. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so I think, you know, Mickey Arison is a good example of, a, of an owner who is not involved in the day-to-day process, is sort of delegated, said, you know, Pat Riley, you're my guy for two decades. And, you know, you, you, you call on me when you need to call on me. I have general opinions. Obviously, big financial commitments are going to need my sign-off. But, you know, I, I, I'm going to defer to your expertise. And I think there's no rookie orientation for owners, which is sort of unfortunate in the league. And it's a learning process. I do think that necessity is the mother of invention. And intelligent people will often defer to empirical evidence when it's supported. And I think there's a lot of empirical evidence to say that selective owners, not not involved owners, but selective owners can often make the most impact. You know, speak soft, carry a big stick. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, You've been... Roaming around Sacramento, you've seen the development, you've seen the arena. What is your take in of the overall, just the the draw that is Golden One Center? That it, it's it's definitely so much better than Arco Arena. But I mean, you have to you have to walk in and go, wow, they they actually did it. They kept the team, and then on top of that, they built something that looks pretty special. Yeah, I was telling a, an executive on the business side today that you know, as a media member, you go to all these arenas, and, and you know what, you're for those two and a half hours, you're still a spectator, right? Like. The quality of the production on in the arena dictates my sensory experience, right? Like a, a good production means I'm enjoying myself sitting there, uh, you know, irrespective of the basketball product. And Friday night, and, and I hope again tonight, and we're taping this before the, the right before the Laker game on Monday night. Uh-huh. Uh, I had a really enjoyable time from the video screen, which is essential to my experience, especially looking up and trying to watch different things. Uh, to just the you know the sound system to you know the crowd this enormous lower bowl which is just a really nice thing to have uh, in an arena it's intimate they basically they were able to put this on a very small footprint people in the architectural world who deal with sports arenas they're like wow what did Sacramento did and I think maybe ten acres is all it is um, but it's only four city blocks and that is very unusual in this day and age and so the ability to to be really resourceful with the arena. Um, you know, it's it's a really impressive place, and you know, you can start seeing the development in this downtown area. I usually spend most of my time in Midtown. I mean, that's where I like to eat, or you know, I went to a yoga studio, or or kind of walk around, get a cup of coffee. Um, it, it'll be fun to see if if that development can stretch all the way from there to the river um, in, in Old Town, and you know, this arena might be a linchpin for that. Okay, so don't want to keep you all night. I know you've got a game to watch. Uh, overall, you're writing a piece. Is it going to be a positive piece, or is it uh, your standard? Hey, this thing is uh, is spinning out again. They're eight and fifteen, and you know this is what it is. It's the Sacramento Kings. You know, I like to pride myself in kind of doing nuance. I, I, I don't do a lot of poison pens, and I don't do a lot of fluff. I think I think you know th- this is a this is an organization at a crossroads. Um, there has definitely been mismanagement. Um, there have been bad decisions. And um, I think they made a very good hire this summer. I think 
they're going to, I think, face the music on their roster. And at a certain point, they're probably going to do something that they haven't done in a while, which is, I'm not going to say strip it down, but really start thinking about less how do we get the eighth seed and more how do we get the three seed in four years. And I think that once they do that, they, they have, I hope they're going to have some good revenue here. I think it's going to be a, a wonderful boon for the franchise's financial prospects. Uh, this is now a more inviting place for any potential free agent. I don't think they're ever going to draw the big guys here, but you know what? You don't have to. I mean, you can have a really successful franchise drafting well and adding pieces. And um, so I think what I'm going to do is to sort of ask the questions, how would we, how will we judge success of this franchise in the next five years, irrespective of wins and losses? What is that going to look like? And I think that's what the piece will do. And they've had already some decent successes and some good foundational work. And the question is, is will they have the discipline and commitment in the, to commit themselves to what might sometimes be a painful process, but a process that every franchise, particularly those outside of glamour markets, have to do? All right, that's Kevin Arnovitz, ESPN. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me, as always, on the talkback portion of the podcast, Mr. Aaron Bruski of hoop-ball.com. AB, what's going on? Not much, man. I had a good weekend. I'm uh, getting all the Christmas stuff taken care of on my end. I feel like I'm caught up. I've uh, I feel like the uh, the NBA is is beyond the twenty game mark, and I I always personally like that because things start to normalize a bit. We don't have to talk about these kind of like obvious sort of overreactions from the first couple months, which I feel like are kind of big waste of time. Uh, but yeah, you know, and then you got the Kings, so uh, I'm sure we got a lot to talk about there. Um, really, really um, disappointing uh, trip. For them, and we had set, kind of set this out as a, a marker for them. So, be interested to get your thoughts on everything and, and sort through the wreckage, as they say. Are you done Christmas shopping? No, no, not done. But we 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 got a lot of it done this last weekend, and it's already crazy out there. I mean, people fighting each other with shopping carts, and you know, just the chaos of going to a place like Target. Even was uh, it was it was a little much for me, but. You know, we held strong. We got through it, and, and you know, we only have a few few more things to get. That's the key to this thing is you got to kind of get at it early. Yeah, I'm all but done. I, I might have like two or three gifts to pick up, but just little stuff that I already know what I'm getting. So yeah, our Christmas tree is already up. We're already packed with presents everywhere. Um, yeah, just uh, it, it's definitely a the holiday season is is upon us, and I, I if anyone out there has one of those little new Nintendos that they want to sell me for retail price, then I would be more than willing to take it off your hands. But besides that, I, I think I've got everything else that I uh, I kind of want and need under the tree. So let's get to Kings basketball. This has been we did set this road trip up as a benchmark, like where would they be coming out of it? And to be honest with you, I I think the it kind of got blown away by the game in Philadelphia because I still believe that if if all things would have happened the way they should have and the Kings would have played against the 76ers they go three and three on the road trip and we're like okay we still don't know what we have here is two and three really that bad or is it the games that happened after that are making us feel a little bit like this thing is spinning out of control pretty quickly well I think it's the the competition is the biggest thing is these were all winnable games and the fact that they're coming, you know, back 
and and only have one win to show for it. And and the Boston game, you can say, hey, you know, that's a high quality team, but they've been struggling this year. Well, they and, were two and, and three. They were two and three on the trip. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, two and three. Yeah, they were no. two and three. They won the first one. They won the last one. They, yeah, they, I'm sorry. but but Dallas isn't really an NBA game. But then again, you know, every game in the NBA counts. So I mean, a win is a win is a win. Yeah, I got my home and away. They're mixed up for a little bit, but yeah, the it it, it just with the, the the opponents that you're looking at there. You know, you look at the Washington Wizards and you go, that's a game that they shouldn't just win. That they should win going away, and and you look at the Knicks and the Knicks with or without Derrick Rose, these are games that they should win. The Knicks are not a good basketball team. But and, they're third and, place in the East. I mean, not that that says anything, but they are. I mean, if you just look up and down their roster, Joakim Noah's on his last legs. Like, he really shouldn't be getting NBA minutes. Um, yeah, he can bother, bother DeMarcus a little bit. You know, Chris Stops wasn't great in the last game. Uh, Carmelo is a shell of his former self. I mean, Courtney Lee didn't even play. Um, you know, you look at Derrick Rose, he's not a good basketball player anymore. Um, Brandon Jennings, he is probably a better fit, but even he struggled at times. Um, they don't have a lot of depth beyond that. They don't really have answers for what the Kings could theoretically be doing with DeMarcus. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, they, they were all C or D performances, uh, with some positive things mixed in between and I'm sure we'll hit those, but, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think anybody in Kingsland is happy with that right now. Oh no, I don't think anyone is ecstatic about what, what's happened over the last two weeks. And, you know, really, if you look at the two Knicks games, um, I, again, I'm not going to say that the Knicks are some stellar team. They are 14 and 10 on the year, which is for some somehow that's good enough for uh, for that would be the eighth spot in the West. Uh, but they're tied for the third spot with Charlotte. Um, the Knicks game, you know, the the first thing I want to start about uh, start on is in the Knicks game. You talked about Chris Depp's Porzingis, and he got off in the in the fourth quarter. I even remember you tweeting out that Chris Stepps is like primed to have a big breakout fourth quarter, and he got off a little bit. But I thought that Willie Cauley Stein did an incredible job on Porzingis when he came in off the bench, and there was something that Porzingis does which I hadn't picked up on, but Willie was diving at his left arm when he was coming at him and holding like getting in the way of his left arm which I thought was weird because I think Porzingis is a right-handed shooter um but I went to Willie after the game and I said hey I I noticed you were doing something different and it kept throwing uh, Porzingis off and he's like yeah he's like you know what to be honest with you I saw him doing that in the way he rounds the ball around his body when he goes up to pull up for a shot and I saw that if I put my hand in in the wrong spot, it just would like mess with the flow of the way he was bringing the ball around. And I thought it was really effective. And Willie's length is bothering people, and he's starting to get some minutes. He's starting to be a little bit of a positive, which, you know, I know you're a huge fan of him. You thought he'd be playing 26, 28 minutes a night. I was a little bit more reserved, not because I'm not a fan, but because I knew that his learning curve was, he was off on his learning curve. But I, I think we're seeing some positive steps. Yeah, I totally agree. Willie's taking some small steps forward here. And, you know, I want to emphasize small because, you know, where he's at now compared to where he was last year at the end of the year, I think it's night and day. And I think a lot of it has to do with the system. Uh, the, the the two bigs, they play such an important role in the offense. And one of the things that I think has had 
Jaeger sticking with Costa Kufus in the starting lineup is he's a big part of the screen game. He's a big part of the post-entry game. And Willie doesn't quite have that. And I don't know if, if Jaeger likes his smaller fours doing all that screening up there. So he's been put into this position where he has to make a lot of decisions. It's not his strong suit. And, you know, he, he also is a guy you don't necessarily want him putting the ball on the ground and doing things. And sometimes that's the correct play in this high post offense is to, to relocate and create a, a different angle. So Willie's had a good little uh, burst here. Uh, it's going to take him a long time to get the types of minutes that I was talking about. And uh, we'll see how he continues to progress. He, he just has to keep his head up and, and do the little things like rebounding, which he hasn't done very well. Uh, if he would just focus on rebounding, I think that that would be a pretty big thing. But again, I think that's the story of these Kings coming out of about 20 games is Jaeger's allegiance to his system. And again, kind of like how he has really stuck to Costa Kufos in that starting unit. This road trip was had a lot of teams where Costa actually matches up well. Mm-hmm. But again, there's not a lot of advantage being taken during that lineup. And then at some point in time, I'm sure we'll talk about Garrett Temple. But, you know, those are the cons. The pros are they, they don't seem to go away in games. They've been in every single game. And that, I think, is probably the frustrating thing from a prognostication standpoint is you see they're close, but they're not getting over the hump. And then there are these key things that seem to be holding them back. So how do they rebound out of it? Okay, so just a couple of things. Number one, I think one of the other issues that Willie Cauley-Stein has in the high post is that no one respects his jumper. And part of the the idea behind the high post, if everyone who remembers the Vlade Divac, Chris Weber era of Kings basketball, is that if you didn't come up on them, then they would just shoot 18, 20-foot jumpers and knock them down. Now, I'm not saying Willie can't hit those, because I think he actually can, but he's yet to shoot one from the top of the key. And that's that's huge. If if you don't shoot it, then the defense just collapses back and clogs the lanes and stops everything from happening on the inside. So that's one issue. Uh, number two, I had the same problem with Costa Kufis. He cannot hit an 18 to 20 foot jump shot. At least he hasn't throughout his career. He hasn't even really tried. And so you have two players in that position that are kind of square peg round hole. And I and I get again why you use Kof, uh, Costa. It's for his defensive mindset, for his ability to take a back seat to other people to sacrifice the good for the good of the team. He is actually a pretty good rebounder. But again, we keep coming back to the same point. Why Costa in the starting lineup when it would make more sense to have Willie be one of the, the multitude of cutters for DeMarcus to feed, and then you would have Costa as sort of that the main force in your second unit going and getting rebounds and and doing the dirty work because that second unit, they lack the ability to rebound. The Kings got out rebound, I think by 20 against Utah the other night, absolutely atrocious. And a lot of that is because Willie Cauley Stein is averaging less than two rebounds a game on the season. And you just can't have a big plan. Even if it's 12, 13 minutes, who doesn't go out there and get you four or five rebounds. Who's not pushing the envelope. Who's not crashing the boards. So that's another flaw that that, you know, Willie has to kind of hone in his game. Well, and I kind of want to focus on that, the screening up top, because so many sets start with dual bigs up at about the elbows and and or what what has happened with Costa Kufos is you can't play him along the baseline. You have to bring him up high. And when you bring him up high, Cousins, in order to maintain some semblance of spacing, he usually flares out to the three point line. But those two guys at the top, what you need out of them in Jaeger's offense is two players that can screen well. 
And I think when he looks at downsizing and he sees Omri Caspi or Rudy Gay or Matt Barnes even, there's not as much screen ability out of those three players. And it kind of throws his concept out of whack. If you can't screen out of both uh, elbow extended players, then you kind of take half the offense away. Which is so why I, Matt Barnes plays. And and it's also why when Matt Barnes sat out on, what, Friday night, they used Anthony Tolliver for 27 minutes after he hadn't played but, like, nine games all season. It's because exactly. they want to run the pick. And, and also, they want Caspi shooting threes. They want Caspi and, all the, and, and Gay out on the perimeter doing, you know, opening up the system. And, and then making cuts and doing all this other stuff. They, they, it's sort of, even when he puts Caspi and Gay on the court together, he's using Gay as the power forward in, in the pick and roll system, in, in and, the high post system. I mean, he and is. It, and it's, it's problematic, I think, because when you have Costa and Cousins on the court at the same time, if you take Costa and you move him out of the top of the key and stick him on the baseline and hide him, his man just camps out inside the key and just tries not to get a three-second call. Yep. But it forces Cousins into this thing that's been terrible for his the development of his game, which is the reliance on the three-point shot. And, and the further he moves away from the hoop, yes, there are guys that he can take side to side and, and loosen them up and, and wiggle them and drop a shoulder into their chest and get something going on the move. We've seen it a million times, and it's a great part of his arsenal, but it is constantly taking away from what he does best, which is accumulate fouls on the other team, open up the floor for his three-point shooters by getting the ball on the post and just being a beast down there. And it's probably the number one most frustrating thing to, to, to watch him do is to not take advantage of the, basically a mismatch every night down low there. So he takes these threes. He's gotten these bad habits where he's now trying to get ripped through calls at ends of games, middles of games, and and, and attempt to draw a foul on a three-point shot. All of this you would think would be a part of his long-term development where they say, this is a good shot. This is a bad shot. And you saw against Rudy Gobert, one of the best defenders in the league, if not perhaps the best DeMarcus Cousins stopper, he didn't know what to do. He kept going to the same stuff, the left to right crossover. I'll say this. I bet teams have scouted that out because they know almost every single time he's going to do some variation of the inside out dribble or a crossover and you could basically just pick based on how he starts his move, which side you're going to shade him. And so many times he stuck a shoulder right in the middle of Rudy Gobert's chest. Rudy didn't budge, and he was forced into a bad shot. So I think what the difference is between a good shot and a bad shot has not been defined within this offense. And then the allegiance to the system is why you're seeing a Costa Kufos and DeMarcus Cousins um, starting group, which has put them behind for the most part all year. But even against these teams where they match up well, it's not taking advantage of what the Kings have, which is if you go small and you put DeMarcus at center, you can line the floor with Rudy Gay, Omri Caspi, Garrett Temple, DeMarcus Cousins, or probably um, Darren Collison, and you have a pretty compelling starting five right there. Omri can do just a little bit of everything, and then you get Garrett out on the wing doing what Garrett does. They start to get dangerous, but we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's it's very strange why he's avoided that. And then other games you see he's gone to the, the lineup that we're talking about in the fourth quarter and, and during long stretches in the third. So he does see that lineup, and he is seeing the productivity of that lineup. I don't know. And, you know, I think a lot of fans are confused also by the fact that Aaron Aflalo was the starter for, what, 18 of the first 20 games, and all of a sudden he's getting DMP CDs or playing, like, the last minute of a game the other night. Um, Aaron, I've talked to I've talked about this on 
the telecast, and it's something that it's a it's something that Paul Westfall used to talk about. Like, look, if I'm really comfortable with somebody at in their role with the reserves, and at this point, Jaeger is really comfortable with Garrett Temple as his as his go to guy in the second unit at the shooting guard spot. Then when he pulls Aaron Aflalo out and he puts Ben McLemore in. What he's doing is he's swapping one piece out for another as opposed to moving somebody up and then somebody back. So Garrett Temple doesn't move into the starting lineup, which means that Ben McLemore is now getting all of Aaron Aflalo's minutes. So it, it's sort of a it's an old tactic that uh, a lot of a lot of coaches still rely on. Uh, you know, Manu Ginobili comes in with the second unit with the San Antonio Spurs for a reason. I mean, it, it's certainly not that Danny Green is better than him. It's that he fits the role, and that's what Popovich wants. Now, if you lose your starting job in that situation, then you're going to the bench. And I don't know if it's a long-term thing. I mean, McLemore, 7 of 23 in his first three starts. That's not okay. He went 0 for 5 against Utah the other night. He needs to hit his open shots, and that's something that he struggled with his entire career. But I'm not sure that the next step is to bring Aaron Aflalo back in and try it or to move Garrett Temple up and try it. I think the next step might be to bring Malachi Richardson up from Reno and say, look, we tried the other two guys. Let's give you a shot and see if you have sort of the, I don't know if it's the gumption or the uh, the mentality to just go out and shoot the ball when it's passed to you and you have an open look. And that's something that I could very well see happening. And I also think that Aaron Aflalo could come back in some other form with this team like as, if they trade Rudy Gay as the starting small forward uh, to, to sort of give you that same style of player again. Yeah, that's really rough. That's asking a lot for Malachi Richardson to come in and not get torched every single play on the floor because he doesn't know where to stand at the NBA level. Um, but is it is it any worse than what you're already getting? Well, I'll say this about Ben. I was, you know, the only real justification that I could see for putting Ben in there the way that, that, that they did was to showcase him and – He's lost on defense, and then what you get offensively is, you know, kind of a, a grab bag on any given night. Uh, he still doesn't know what a good shot is, and and that's really rough when you consider. Here's the thing with Garrett Temple: you could say, hey, bring him off the bench, bring him in the starting group. The the, the thing about bringing him in the starting group is he's the perfect complement to this particular squad of, you know, high usage guys in Demarcus and Rudy, and then even Darren is as a third scorer. You want him to be aggressive. You want your shooting guard with this particular lineup to not take a lot of shots and to be a lockdown defender. That's what Garrett Temple is. The I, fact ag- that- I agree with you. Just so you know, I agree with you, but I'm going off of the premise that Dave Yeager has an idea that he's sticking with. Well, here's the thing is at some point in time that has to be evaluated because right now Garrett Temple, for players that are over 20 minutes a game, he has the fourth best net rating on the squad. And he also plays a lot of his minutes with guys that aren't as good. And yeah. so every time he's on the court, you, you know, I watch him pretty closely because I've pretty much staked the reputation that he's going to be somebody that you want on the floor 33 minutes per game. I like to see what his flaws are. He dips away from three-point shooters a little bit too much, but it's really hard to fault him when a lot of that is, is coming back to the fact that he's playing really good defense. But really, there's not a lot of flaws when he's on the floor. He is doing so much for the Kings, and it's really hard to watch because it's pretty obvious. And now you you kind of go, okay, what should the decision on Garrett Temple be? Well, he should probably play those 33 minutes, whether it's at the two, the three, a little bit at the one. How are you going to work that out? He just has to be on the floor for these guys. 
Another guy that should get, be getting more minutes is Ty Lawson. Both of those guys have been playing extremely well. And, um, you know, they're, they're both fighters. The, um, the defense that Ty Lawson's been playing has been pretty impressive, except I tweeted about his good play, and then he had, like, four straight bad plays the other <laughs> night. But I, I think that happens. <laughs> I know, right? And, but I think his mentality and his fit with the second unit, especially playing with Costa Kufos as the only other big, he gets a nice, solid screen from Costa. Costa can roll to the hoop and convert on those little flick shots. So him and Ty have a nice little two-man game going. Um, but it just comes back to you have a you have a guy right now in Garrett Temple who is pretty much shut down the league's best scores and he's giving you everything you want on the offensive end. You know, why isn't this guy playing? And and it's really confusing from an analyst perspective because that, you know, you're in these two point games, these three point games and, you know, so much can, you know, swing one way or another based on momentum. And this one card, two cards really is the the don't play Costa and, and Cuz together card. And then the Garrett Temple needs more minutes card. You have two cards that you could play that I really think would swing, you know, these three point losses into, you know, five point wins. I think they probably would have three to four more wins right now if they did those two things. So we just have to see, you know, how long will it continue? Is this something that they can figure out and move forward with? And, um, you know, the, the pressure couldn't be more because every loss breeds a DeMarcus Cousins doesn't want to be traded, but should be traded story. Yeah. It does. It it does breed that. And look, the the one thing I'll say about Temple too is as a starter, this is why the argument I would make for him being a starter. Um, I think some teams have like a powerhouse score off the bench. Like the Kings are playing the Lakers on Monday night. Lou Williams. I, I like the fact that that Garrett Temple might come off the bench and guard Lou Williams. I think that's a right. good thing. That's a good thing. Um, and there are other teams in the league that have that exact same thing. But the problem that you have is that when you play really good teams with really good starters that have really good scoring ones or twos, is you you instantly let somebody get going if you start somebody who's not up for the challenge. So like talking to Doug Christie, um, he said the one thing that used to just drive him absolutely bonkers is when they were playing the Lakers and he would come out of the game it didn't matter who was coming in for him, but when he would come out of the game and then all of a sudden Kobe Bryant would, would get two or three shots to go down. And then when he went back in the game, now he's got to deal with Kobe who's got rhythm and, and he's starting to, to blow up as opposed to the subdued Kobe that he had fought to you know kind of harness for the time that they were on the floor together against each other. So... So when you let someone get loose, it's sort of like I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about this self-fulfilling prophecy of Jimmer Ferdet's defense. And it wasn't that Jimmer was so horrific on defense that he couldn't play, or maybe it was. But the thought the, the fact was that every team in the league, every guard that came into the game knew coming in that they thought they could get over on Jimmer. And so whether he was a good defender or not, they came in with an extra confidence and they got things going right away. And, you know, I, I remember Jeff Taylor, who I, isn't even in the league anymore, but he came in playing for Charlotte and he just blew up. He came in, he scored like 20 in, in like a really short burst in a game. And he was a huge difference. And it's all because they came into the game thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to get my minutes against a guy who I think is a bad defender. And whether he's a bad defender or not, that little bit of extra confidence that an NBA player walks in with 
is sometimes what puts them over the top and helps them find that instant offense, that instant sort of rhythm. And so I would make that as my argument as to why I believe that Garrett Temple should start. Because if you can knock somebody off their game from the opening tip, then you, you're you winning a battle. And well, every and- minute they're on the floor, I want him guarding James Harden. I want him guarding Russell Westbrook every minute that the other one is on the floor. Just just to try to keep them under wraps. And you you hit it right on the head with that point. Cause, and, and if you watch those games, the minute that they were not covered by Garrett Temple, A, they went right to work because they were like, I don't want to have to deal with that other guy ever again. I'm going to just get my points right now while I can. But they start making mistakes. They they It's a cumulative effect, offense and defense, defense and offense. And if you're constantly – you can't put the ball on the ground or your shots aren't optimized, whatever the case may be, you start to try a little harder to do something else. You get out of your rhythm, and it's just a complete cumulative effect. And the team being plagued by these slow starts and what it does to their defense and what it does to their energy levels and what it kind of does to their morale, it's been noticeable. And you have this one card that you can play that hasn't been played. And and I would just kind of ask, you know, the Kings, there's a lot of Kings fans are just completely fed up out there. With, they think that this team can't win. They think that this season is, you know, like, you know, bring on the tanking and all of that, blow up the roster. And we've had that conversation a million times. But if you had three to four more wins on, on this team right now, how would you be feeling about that? You would probably be pretty happy knowing that you're beating expectations, that there's positive steps being taken going forward, you know, especially with a guy like Garrett Temple who does everything you want him to do on the court, off the court, et cetera. You know, having him on on board for 33 minutes a game by osmosis would be helping these guys move in the right directions. And you would have this you would have a better vibe about this team. And but instead, you have this major doom and gloom out there where people are freaking out and and they want it blown up. They don't think that this team has the talent to win. And I just you know, I look across both conferences and I say, once you get outside of the contenders, which are three teams in the in the West and like two teams, maybe three teams in the East, the rest of that roster, the rest of the conferences, the rest of the teams, they are not that good. It's a big, fat middle. It's a huge middle. It's good. The middle goes from like four to like 13 sometimes. It does. It does. And And, look, you take three, three wins, and it doesn't even take like anything to pull out three wins that the Kings should have had or could have had, right? And we could do shoulda, coulda, woulda all season, but... They're 11 and 12 with three more wins. Which would be drastically overperforming. You'd have instead of going into you know, the Lakers game, they would be 11 yeah, but, and 12 with a chance to go to 500. But now they're seven games under 500, which is a, a season high. Seven games. I mean, they're in trouble right now. They they can't lose against the Lakers. Strangely that's one enough, thing. They're, they're, they're picked by like six and a half over the Lakers. Well, they were four and a half the other night. And Vegas knows that these guys are better than their opposition. Like you, you have DeMarcus. <laughs> yeah. You have DeMarcus cousins is this unstoppable piece if used correctly. And Rudy Gay has, you know, really tailed off as far as his kind of on court, uh, basketball IQ goes, but his defense is kind of held up for the most part. And his no, offense has been, it did not hold up at all against Carmelo. Oh no, 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 no. no. Carnell, Carmelo toasted him, but I'm, you know, I kind of look at him in the aggregate. How's he doing men- mentally? Is, is he engaged? Um, Carmelo is a bad matchup for him and kind of vice versa too. But, uh, even though Carmelo got off the other day, but yeah, you know, you, you just look at this team and, and you go, 
if constituted correctly, they can compete on any given night. And it's hard to say um, that they can't beat these other teams, but yet the conversation surrounding this team is what it is. They're like you said, they're in hot water. They're in trouble. And again, why, you know, if, if you're in trouble, so to speak, why not make the changes? So we're going to see, are they going to make the changes? And I don't know if I'm optimistic that they're going to make the changes. I think they might just roll with that, that, that mentality, you know, for the next 20 games. It, it You're very, you might be right about that. I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I'll say this. Uh, we got to wrap this thing up and we'll get to final comments here in just a minute. But um, the Kings have played the, the second toughest schedule in the NBA from, that's what Ken Cadenella told me the other day, uh, through the first like 20, 23 games or something. And it, and it doesn't get any easy, easier. I mean, when you play the Knicks at home after a six game road trip with only a day rest, you come back. That's usually a game that t- teams struggle with. But then to have to fly to Utah to play the Jazz the next night and to go toe to toe with the Jazz and, and be down by two points going into the fourth and lose by 20, that showed you that they, they had nothing left. And then you get the Lakers, but then again, a three game road trip. So of the last, what are they going to play? 7 10. 10 out of 12 on the road. And it's not cupcakes either. I mean, I, I guess there are some weak competition with Philadelphia, uh, with, you know, the Philadelphia's, the Washington's, you know, those guys in the last road trip. But this next road trip, it, it's not. It's it's another brutal stretch. And, you know, they've had a tough go. And I, I'm not going to write them off completely. I just know that they're struggling. They're scuffling a bit. And they're going to have to, like, really put their, their head down and forge forward as a group and try to piece this thing together. But I do believe, Aaron, that changes are coming, and they're coming very soon. So that December 15th mark, it's just right around the corner. As soon as December 15th hits, every team in the league can trade players that they acquired during the offseason, which it doesn't seem like that would be such a huge deal. But when you're a team like the Kings and you have like four or five players that were acquired that way and couldn't be traded, and then you're dealing with other teams that... It makes it so deals can be balanced out where a lot of deals right now can't be balanced out. So I expect them to be crazy busy starting December 15th because uh, it's not working and they need to hit hit the reset button a little bit. And even if it's bringing in different veterans that might fit better, then that's what I would do at this point. It's We've got to that stage already. Yeah, absolutely. That December 15th will loosen up things around the league. And so I, maybe that's why Ben McElmore is playing is to get one last showcase out there. Maybe that's why Costa Kufus is playing. Um, I don't think that's the case for either player, but, you know, maybe that is what's think going on in the background there. Uh, you know, one thing that kind of came to mind as we wrap this up is I go um, and I, I listened to Cousins talk after the game, you know, that he you know, he put the blame on himself. And, you know, they've done a good job of, of not putting any blame on anybody else but themselves. And, uh, you know, that's the mark of a veteran club and, and good for them for that. But I will say this, you know, the, I think Jason wrote something about this. It, the words eventually become, you know, something you, you want to see actions. And yeah. so if you know, DeMarcus, that those were bad shots that you were taking, don't go out and take them anymore. You know, yeah. if you if somebody shows you something on film where it's like, hey, you know what, you're committing a foul here and it's, you know, you got to stop doing that, you know, stop doing that. They should be stopping with the gambling in the backcourt. That stuff is just crazy bad from a, a X's and O's perspective. You're just creating four on fives on the other side. 
all these little things that keep getting done, you know, those are the points of improvement that you started to see under Malone. Obviously, he was no longer there. Um, you, you would like to see that out of this squad. And I don't know if that's the veterans getting on the guys that aren't doing it. If it's the coaches that got to, you know, basically say, if you don't play the right way, then you don't play. I mean, a guy like Darren Carlson is getting benched kind of here, there and everywhere for, for stuff that he's doing. And I don't know. I, I, I would, I would I'd wrap it up like this. Everybody's kind of got a little bit that they got to improve on. I don't think it's a lost season by any stretch, but it is, let's say December 15th is the deadline for, kind of figuring things out. If you don't see a trade right away that changes the dynamic of this team, I think it's fair to start saying, okay, where are the adjustments? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, final thoughts, Aaron, do you have any final thought? Nope. That's it. I'm good. That's it. Okay. My final thought would be, I would like to see Dave Yeager. I hate saying this in game doing a little bit more. I think he's doing a miraculous job at halftime. I think he, his team has come out after the after the first half, after bad starts, and he's making really nice adjustments. I would like to see him, even if it's pulling a player over during a timeout or during a free throw and, and saying, hey, look, I need you to do this, this, and this, or pulling a guy off the floor for a minute, having a conversation with him, put him putting him right back in the game. I would like to see a little bit more tinkering on the fly while the game is going, especially in the first half, when things have gone out of control time and time again. So I, I don't know what that is. I, you know, that's a it's a stylistic thing. Um, you know, some coaches use timeouts all the time. You know, Greg Popovich is notorious for using his timeouts very liberally. Uh, he'll he'll use one, and then a minute later, if he didn't get the same re- the result that he was asking for, he'll call another one and yell at his team again. Um, but that's something that I've noticed, like throughout the first you know, 20 something games, he's letting his players try to play through it. And I don't think they're ready to have that kind of, uh, I don't, I want to say th- their coach shouldn't have that much faith in them this early in the process. And, and so that's DeMarcus that, almost talked his way into a DeMarcus almost talked his way into a second technical the other night. And it was, you know, late in the game. And I thought to myself, Somebody needs to get in between DeMarcus and uh, and that last technical because, I mean, you've got a winnable game here. You need him on the court, and he was so close to getting it. And we didn't even talk about his technicals, but, yeah, it's um, – <laughs> The text. I mean, hey, uh, just don't worry about him. Don't worry about yeah, him. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it and these aren't the is. demonstrative crazy texts that he used to get. They're not. And that's well, the some of them Well, some of them are worthy, but he's yeah, got yeah. like three that aren't. Yeah, three yeah. or four. I something think so like too. That. The Kings need to do a better job of of appealing these to the NBA office. All yeah, right, true. so yeah, too. so Aaron, uh, I think that's going to do it for this edition of the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. Uh, special thanks to Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN for dropping by. Uh, good friend Kevin Arnovitz is always such a wealth of knowledge. Uh, just a spectacular interview. So uh, again, thank you for tuning into the CSN Kings Insider Podcast, brought to you by Max Muscle. For Aaron Bruski, I am James Ham. We'll see you soon. <laughs>